happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 155 for November the 13th, 2019. My name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I actually haven't said my title lately, I guess, in the shows. But I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School, also teaching 5th and 6th grade media and digital literacy this year, just having kicked off the new trimester. Joined, as always, from our friend from the Great White North, almost, the Great White Montana Big Sky Country, Dr. Jason Neifer. How are you tonight, Dr. Neifer? Uh, good evening, Dr. Fryer. I am well, thank you. Um, it is a lovely night here in Missoula. Uh, it's going to be, the, the lows have been in the, the upper teens and early 20s, and we're supposed to have a 60 degree, 60 degree day on Friday, so who knows what that means. But I will probably not be out enjoying it because I will be in my office as the assistant director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the beautiful University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana. And um, big week uh, here in Montana. Actually, some things that, that I'll be talking about tonight during the podcast. Great uh, uh, information released from the um, Rural Education Trust about the importance of technology. And in particular, in my neck of the woods, distance learning to uh, rural students that need to access courses beyond what is available in smaller schools in very rural states like Montana. Um, and of course, I'm interested in all technology and what we can do to better make schools better by meaningfully and thoughtfully integrating technology into the classroom. But my guess is we're not just here to hear about me wax about technology. Wes, what is the EdTech Situation Room? So we will talk about the week's past technology headlines through an educational lens, and we will probably go down a few rabbit holes, and we may even get up on our soapbox and rant a little bit, as we are prone to do at times. But we will hopefully shed some light, not only on current events, but the ways that those current events may be able to impact us in the classroom or the administration office or wherever it might be that we are involved in education. That is our goal. And we want to encourage everybody to check out our show note links. You can find those at edtechsr.com slash links, where we have an embedded Google document with generally far more links than we have time to cover in a week's show. We have been using the same Google Doc now for 154 shows, and it's kind of nice. You, we've got that table of contents there at the top. I think it's like 60-page document or something crazy if we were to print it. But anyway, um, it has a lot. And then on the actual website, edtechsr.com, where maybe you have found this, if you are listening to it, um, you will be able to uh, hopefully access the links that we actually talk about in the show. So there are uh, you know, usually fewer fewer of those than we have on the doc itself. So, would you would you like to um, pick the, the first topic, Doctor Neifer? Would you like to pass that to me tonight? What is your your? Preference? I think I'll pass that to you. You put in so many great, interesting links tonight. Why don't you start off, and we'll see where it goes. All right. Well, let's start out with one that is really interesting, uh, and I put this under streaming media. So we can talk a little bit about Disney Plus in a minute, but I want to talk about YouTube. This is an article from The Verge on October 11th, and The Verge headlines this, YouTube says it has, quote, no obligation to host anyone's video. And then the subtitle is, Other Changes Affect Children's Content. And so the short of it is, there's a new terms of service that YouTube is rolling out on December 10th, and they have explicitly said some things that some some journalists have pointed out. They always have said, perhaps, but they're you know pointing it out you know even more clearly. Um, it is common for companies to update their terms of service. That this happens a lot. 
there's been some fines. So in September, the FTC uh, had a $175 million fine against Google for allegedly violating uh, COPA, the Children's Online Protection Act. And so the terms of service have an updated section. I'll read this on parental responsibility. When children use the platform, uh, have more clearly stated age requirements per country. And then there is a notice stating if you are a minor in your country, you must always have your parent or guardian's permission before using the service. And so there's some other articles I want to reference tonight that talk about screen time. Um, we actually have a parent university session tomorrow night called Let's Talk About Screen Time. So I've been doing some reading and research and preparation for that. But I think the most troubling thing, and this is what I, I really am not sure about, uh, and this is what people have been tweeting about, is the following. Uh, this is a quote from the Terms of Service. YouTube may terminate your access or your Google account's access to all or part of the service if YouTube believes in its sole discretion that provision of, of the service to you is no longer commercially viable. And so what some creators have been saying is this is going to, you know, they're, they're fearing, you know, lead to the capricious, let's use that lovely legal term, um, you know, deletion or termination of, of people's accounts. We know uh, in terms of tech correction that we talk about a lot, responding to the proliferation of, you know, hateful and, um, offensive and uh, violent, inappropriate content continues to be a huge issue at scale on YouTube and other social media platforms. So, you know, it appears that YouTube is is positioning themselves perhaps to have an even more clear legal position to delete content. I mean, what we hope, what I certainly hope is that this doesn't mean, you know, if you're not a content creator with tens of thousands of viewers, hey, we're going to shut you down. You know, I think the EdTech Situation Room, uh, you know, may not uh, be living on YouTube if that happens. But I, I don't see that fear playing out, but it is interesting. And so uh, I think, you know, the rationale for this, much as it is for like why they're cracking down on um, brand channels for, for EDU domains, right? That's a weird thing that we saw, you know, happen last spring. So Dr. Neifer, you have any theories about what Google and YouTube may be about here with the updated terms of service and these changes? Well, I, I think part of this is, is that, you know, YouTube is facing increased pressure about channels that it's forcing off of their platform. And I know you had an interaction, uh, was it yesterday or the day before, with a, with another user that said that that uh, the number of creators have been pushed off of YouTube is going to force them into a third party uh, or multiple third parties. And yeah. I agree with your analysis and your answer back on, on, on Twitter that, that there's no evidence at this point that people are going to mass leave platforms um, for, for upstarts. And I almost jumped into the fray on that one and decided that the the better angels of my nature would keep me off of that argument. But the the thing that I kept thinking about is the fact that you know, we've been looking for an alternative for Twitter for 15 years, and I know that that there has been a number of attempts to create like alternative Twitter universes that are better for whatever reason. And in fact, we could even look towards Google and their Google Plus experiment that people are trying to find alternatives to these major platforms, and nothing seems to stick. Right? And you know, it's true that that some platforms come and go. And, and, and right now we talked about in a previous episode that uh, major social media platforms are scared of TikTok and what it can do because it is a growing platform as opposed to Instagram, Facebook, um, even Snapchat, which are pretty much stagnant in their growth. But I don't see a scenario at this point that there's going to be a mass exodus to a single tool 
for you know uh, mass statistics to YouTube to a single tool. And if content exists on a variety of different tools, I think that kind of hurts the YouTube argument for why it's it's so popular, right? It's because you can get so much content. And I'm talking about the good stuff here, not the stuff that you know is maybe. Um, you know, edging people towards more aggressive uh, uh, political views. I'm talking about the cooking channels and the fact that I've turned into a pain Bon Appetit, bon Appetit magazine, paper magazine subscriber because I enjoy the Bon Appetit channel on YouTube so much. I'm talking about that stuff, right? Which I think creates a very compelling argument for the platform. But, you know, as it becomes more controversial and I think as as more and more, you know, alternative uh, uh, outlets for whatever purposes end up on the platform, YouTube is going to probably start taking action and that's going to create an exodus uh, for some users of the platform. But I don't know where you go that, that can, you know, uh, amass that in one location. And the other thing too is that what makes YouTube an effective tool for, you know, we've talked about this a number of times in the podcast as part of the so-called tech correction is the 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 notion that now that we're acknowledging that there are shortfalls is not the right word, but it's complicated to give everyone a platform on whatever platform you're talking about. Um, if, you know, the let, let's say it's the alt-right movement decides that that they're going to leave and go to another platform. Sure, the those that already believe in the alt-right uh, would, would follow uh, creators there. There's no doubt in my mind about that. But I don't know what that means for recruiting new people to the, those political views, right? Right. Because they're on YouTube. And they're not wanting that particular group and, and others are not wanting to simply live in their own cave, in their own echo chamber and listen to themselves. They're wanting to impact and even drive mainstream media conversations. And we've got some articles and links in the show notes tonight talking about that. So I, I agree. I think the virality of social media, you know, is, is really a new phenomenon historically. And <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, people that might be classified as sort of tech utopists or those, you know, who have just been really optimi optimistic and Pollyannish and maybe, you know, overly naive about what, what it means when you give everyone the tools to, to publish at will, if we want to use those terms. And so I do think that, th you know, this is stuff that's got to be figured out and probably, you, you know, this is related to YouTube wanting to position itself better to respond to those kinds of things. This is, this is tough stuff, right? There's really smart people working on this and they, they haven't, haven't figured it out um, because, you know, it's hard to determine even in the announcement that Facebook or sorry, that Twitter made, we talked about last week where they're not going to have uh, paid political ads. Well, what does that mean? You know, and what, how do you determine a paid uh, issue ad and, and, and how are you going to, you know, police that at scale? How, how are you going to do that? Right. Absolutely. And, you know, let's also remember YouTube is the greatest e-learning tool in the history of learning, right? Like they're, you know, uh, think about back to 20 or 30 years ago, well, actually 20 or 30 years ago, 30 or 40 years ago when VHS tapes became uh, a, a thing and schools started investing so much in video, um, obviously commercial video was the dominant piece there, but that was supposed to, and in many ways, revolutionize classroom instruction that we could bring in video that could re 
repeat or play or record Nightline and play it the next day for class. Extraordinary uh, step in the in the future. And as it turns out, YouTube is that times a thousand. And you know, it, one of the things that and 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 I get there are good arguments for limiting access to YouTube from a technical standpoint in a district. I know that bandwidth is still not as cheap as it should be, and I wish that providers would 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 provide even more cheaper or more more cheap access to the internet so that districts can have as much pipe as they need so every student could stream a video if they wish. But the bottom line is, is that uh, when we block YouTube, when we limit YouTube, we are taking, you know, tens of thousands of traditional content providers. I'm not talking about the extraordinary proliferation of, of new content providers. I'm talking about the Library of Congress. I'm talking about the British Museum. I'm talking about the um, the Modern Museum of Art in New York. I'm talking about the Met. I'm talking about um, uh, uh, the Smithsonian. I'm talking about ABC and, and PBS and all of the extraordinary content creators that now have zero barrier to providing their high quality content to mass audiences. And and we haven't mentioned the long tail here in a while, and it's it's starting to become not a dated notion because it's still very real, but we don't talk about it as much as we used to. But you want to talk about long tail and YouTube, you know, YouTube audiences that have tiny, 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 tiny local audiences, but could find 10,000, 15,000, 30,000 people that could subscribe to a channel. There's no scenario where traditional television or videotape or even DVDs can provide a market there. It's an easy one for YouTube. And I think I've mentioned this in the past, but but my partner in crime at the Digital Academy, his name is Mike, and his mom has a crafting channel on YouTube and has nearly 30,000 providers. And it's, it's a more nuanced. Subscribers? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, what did I say? Providers. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of providers for one channel. Thirty thousand subscribers, and um, she's a she's a, a retired nonprofit uh, a professional, and the the ninety percent of the videos is a an iPhone propped up on her crafting table, and the the channel is called Craft with Me, and she has this extraordinary audience of people that really count on her as a friend, right? That that it's a regular opportunity to craft with someone else, and she's got great creative ideas and is a, is a, a very creative producer of content but you know that th those stories are inspiring to me right oh, yeah. and if you take that to the kind of broader learning perspective you know there's just so many amazing channels of people who are de facto experts that have zero beard entry to provide learning can can you please drop the link to her channel in our show notes and <clears throat> i want to actually maybe even use that tomorrow night at this parent university session uh, because our tendency when we say something like, let's talk about screen time, is going to be, you know, let's absolutely dredge up the worst examples of right. the darkness online. Right. And let's marinate in it together and resolve to throw away our, our uh, you know, smartphones. So I think it's really good to be reminded of those kind of things. Not to be, you know, naive and put our head in the sand and, and be Pollyanna, but... But to say, look, this is this is an extraordinarily powerful platform that can be used for wonderful things. Unfortunately, that means it could also be used for things that are not wonderful. And um, let's be aware of those. Right. Absolutely. So, would you like to talk a little bit about rural education? I think you dropped. Sure. Yeah. Uh, this probably uh, is is maybe a, a larger discussion starter for 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 our audience more than it is for the podcast tonight. But um, the Rural School and Community Trust released their 2018 2019 
uh, Why Rural Matters report and something that I've become acutely aware of since taking this job. And, and let me be clear, Montana's a rural state, right? So uh, our largest cities here is just over 100,000. It's not a, a you know, megatropolis by any stretch of the imagination, but I grew up in Montana's larger towns. I uh, was born in Great Falls, population about 65,000. Um, I spent most of my uh, uh, college years and teaching years in Helena, Montana. It's the state capital. It has about 60,000 uh, folks that live there. And then I'm now in what what passes a big city in 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 uh, Montana. I'm in Missoula, which is where uh, one of the two flagship universities are located at in Montana. It's Missoula, Montana. And, um, you know, I, one of the things I had to figure out pretty quickly on my job is that you know, the vast majority of schools in the state of Montana are tiny, right? We have about 30 or so high schools that, that have anywhere from, you know, three, 400 folks up to, I think our largest high school has about 1,800 students. But there are hundreds of, of school districts and particularly high schools, K-8 schools, elementary schools that are well below 200 people and many that are below a, a, a 50 or even 20. And, in a state like Montana, where you can drive from one end to the other in 12 hours, that's how long it takes by car to get from one end of the state to the other, um, it's a struggle here to provide access to all the services to all the students that live in rural Montana, like students in Bozeman or Great Falls or Missoula or Billings or Kalispell get access to. And if you are in a state um, that has a larger rural population, and let's be honest, even states like Texas have very large rural populations, this report breaks down what access to education looks like. And it's not particular to technology, but there are many references to technology littered throughout the report, especially as it relates to distance learning and creative and interesting ways that we can get good quality teachers into smaller schools that may or may not be able to afford large staffs that can teach unique electives, right? If you are sitting in um, a tiny town in Montana, uh, Eureka or Ekalaka, those are, are two sides of the state in Montana. Um, uh, both of them are small schools, not the smallest, but small schools. You know, budgets here don't allow, you know, folks to hire three history teachers if you're, you know, graduating class is 11. So you may not have access to AP courses or dual credit courses or um, unique electives without access to new ways of, of, of getting teachers and students together by technology. So if you're in a state that that whether you, you, you think you have a large rural population or issue in providing access or not, I strongly suggest you look at this report. It has a great state-by-state -state breakdown gives you a sense on, um, you know, how the states compare in regards to rural population. By the way, Montana, one of the most rural states in the nation, right? And it's not just because of population, it's population and size. So we have lots of cities in northeastern Montana. Most of our population is central to west, but we have a lot of small towns um, in agriculturally uh, dominant communities in eastern Montana that are extremely remote. Um, whenever you see like a top 10 remote cities list uh, uh, in the United States, usually Alaska towns will be three or four on that list. And then as it turns out, Montana towns are also uh, uh, considered very rural in the state. So very interesting report. Uh, it's been out for, I think it's three or four days. Um, I had Monday off uh, from work. And so I spent a good percentage of that day paging through the report. And it's very interesting reading. So I'll make a couple of connections here. Probably eight months ago, a while back, my wife and I went to a town hall meeting downtown in Oklahoma City. 
Um, it may have been further back than that because this actually was around the time of the teacher walkout in Oklahoma mm -hmm. and having legislators talk about that and whether we're going to have pay raises and, and the implications there. And uh, it was really, really wonderful. There was a state senator and two state representatives there. <clears throat> really wonderful just to hear directly from them stories and some eye-opening things about what happens, you know, in the legislature. But <clears throat> one of the biggest things they talked about that I had not heard that much, it, you know, politically discussed is the rural-urban divide. Yeah. And so here in Oklahoma, we have a, a really big divide between our two large urban areas, Oklahoma City, where, where we live, where there's about 1.2 million people in the greater metropolitan area. Um, you know, the, the, the central school district, Oklahoma City Public Schools, pre-desegregation had about 90,000 students. Today, it's about 45,000. It's about half the size. But, you know, like a lot of cities, we are surrounded by uh, a lot of, of suburbs, some of which are, are wealthier, um, and we have a, a poorer urban core. And so Tulsa is our other large city. And so anyway, that is a huge thing with state politics. And every once in a while, we've got over 500 districts, most of which have less than 200 kids, uh, most of which have a superintendent that's paid over $100,000. You know, that really grinds on, on people. Um, but, you know, it is a huge thing between the perspectives that folks who are in urban areas versus rural areas have towards different kinds of issues. Certainly school co consolidation proposals would, would be one of them. But the other connection that I want to make in trying to understand this, so this is an important thing that we need, you know, politically to uh, address and, and understand. Um, it's another way that we're separated and polarized. And gosh, do we ever live in a time, you know, where uh, if you're an individual or an organization that wants to see society polarized, I, I don't think you have lived in a more gleeful day, you know, because there's just so much dissension and, and polarization that we have around different issues. But there was a New York Times article, and I just uh, dropped this into, uh, pardon me, <coughs> into the show notes. And this is an op-ed. Uh, it's by Monica Potts, and it was from October the 4th. Um, and, and this gets into politics here, which we're not a political show, uh, but talking about rural, and you mentioned not being served and the dynamics of, you know, folks in rural areas not having their needs served and feeling like they don't have a voice politically. Uh, this was an article written about rural Van Buren County, Arkansas. It's called In the Land of Self-Defeat. But it's the fight over a local library and whether or not they would increase taxes to pay this librarian more and, you know, improve this social service. And what the community ends up deciding is no way she doesn't deserve that. We don't need to pay that. And it is not a really optimistic view, at least in, in rural Arkansas, for this particular author of the dynamics of where education is and where the sentiments of taxpayers are about education and the need for, you know, education and library services and things like that. So anyway, there's a lot here to unpack. Um, but I definitely know that Oklahoma shares a lot with Montana, not the size of the geography, but certainly having a very dispersed, uh, largely rural population. Um, and then having, you know, some real uh, challenges that are are unique to rural ed education settings in terms of limitations and things, frankly, that you know technology should should try to help bridge. Uh, and it seems to me like, from what I know of you and the the Montana Montana Digital Academy, and you've been through multiple iterations. I mean, if anybody out there is looking for models to study and people to talk to who have walked down a long road of of how do we best serve the needs of rural 
very isolated learners, and, you know, in, to include teachers. And how do we do that in such a way that we're not seen just as a threat and somebody who's coming to, you know, take, take money away from uh, existing public schools? I think Montana has great examples to take a look at there. And I think that we need to have dialogue, you know, and so remembering that town hall meeting makes me, you know, realize I, I think I posted something today about how we need to be reinventing and reinvigorating representative democracy here in the United States. You know, we, we really uh, are in, in challenging times and we need to raise a generation of kids passionate uh, and, and wanting to support representative democracy because, you know, if people don't care, if people don't vote, if people are disengaged and they're disenfranchised, We've seen we've seen this record played before in history, and it doesn't it doesn't have a a pretty ending. And uh, we we need to empower people to share their voice, to have their their voices heard, their perspectives heard, and you know to figure out how we can work together to improve things. And uh, I think that there's a lot a lot of challenges that we have to face. So anyway, yep. brings those thoughts to mind. Excellent. Well, uh, where to next, sir? Well, why don't we talk a little bit about AI? Um, I put a couple articles underneath the heading AI and surveillance, and uh, I'll do the the first, the second article first. This is from MIT Technology Review on October thirtieth. DeepMind AI has now outcompeted nearly all human players at StarCraft Two. And I'll actually drop into the, the links as well a video that I played for my students in our little class meeting wonder links in the last two weeks. I didn't know a lot about StarCraft. I'm really not a gamer. But um, part of the almost cultural literacy that we need people to know about when it comes to supercomputers and AI you know, is the story of Gary Kasparov and when he got beat you know, years ago playing chess. And then, you know, that was what, Deep Blue. And then uh, AlphaGo was this computer developed that has been able to beat the world's best Go players and the ways that in, you know, South Korea and Japan. I mean, this is just unthinkable that, you know, the world's best players who have spent their entire lives, you know, playing this game are now being beat by a computer that's making moves um, that they've never seen before. It's creatively figuring things out and doing things that humans have not ever done before. And, and it's amazing. The world's best players, it's, it's, you know, they're finding it incredible. And so now this next chapter is this game, Starcraft. And so there's a statistic in this article about the number of possible moves in a StarCraft game, and it is just, you know, absolutely uh, crazy. It says there's 10 to the 26 power of choices for every move. So for those of us mathematically challenged, I think that's 26 zeros after the 10. Uh, that is a huge, huge number. And so uh, the video that I'll also drop in, um, you know, shows the team bringing in some of the world's best StarCraft players. And this is a, a, a fighting game, a, a game where you control. And one of the things that's incredible about the video is how fast these the, their guys that are playing this are on their computers and their mice and, and doing this. But, you know, you're going up against a supercomputer, which doesn't just uh, take the moves of human players and the algorithms that humans have coded, 
but it learns on its own at its own speed. And so anyway, that is a real sign of the times. Um, and, and I think part of the cultural literacy of kind of how AI is continuing to advance. We're not going to be taken over tomorrow by, by Skynet. But, you know, AI is real and it's, it's making remarkable uh, progress. But this next one is a video. And I just want to encourage everybody, put this on your watch list, okay? Thanksgiving holidays are coming, Christmas holidays. This is about a two-hour special, but this is on Frontline for PBS. It's called In the Age of AI. It took them two years to put this thing together. And if you've been a listener of the show for very long, you are going to hear about a lot of issues and things that we have talked about from Huawei and the ways in which, you know, concerns over surveillance, uh, the, the Uyghur minority in Western China, uh, the ways in which, um, you know, we're having a competition between China and the United States with 5G and the rollout of these technologies and, you know, the concerns over being able to listen in and, and capture, you know, data and, and privacy. Wow, this is phenomenal. In fact, if you are teaching any kind of course uh, that relates to artificial intelligence or surveillance and privacy, uh, or we could even just say more broadly, digital citizenship, man, put this on your syllabus. Um, either have students watch this and then discuss that, or you can have clips that you talk. I just have never seen a better presentation of, of AI that I think is very balanced. And it's not just trying to portray, you know, the sky is falling and, and we're all just going to be, uh, you know, owned by the machines. Um, artificial, you know, intelligence in terms of, of cars and trucking and the ways that that disruption is going to impact employment. Are we going to have a universal basic income? How are we going to deal with literally thousands of folks that have been making a middle income wage? You know, suddenly it's not going to be everybody. There's still long haul trucking, but, you know, a lot of folks who have been doing long haul trucking, the, the, I forget how many you know billions of dollars the whole industry is in, in, in trucking, but it's huge. And like a third of that is labor costs. And so, you know, automation, machines, uh, in, in, you know, delivering packages, there's, there's a whole lot going on. And so I just felt like this is a fantastic uh, deep dive into these issues that really connects a lot of dots and it would honestly be a great thing to watch together and talk about because processing these changes and then figuring out what are we going to do politically, right? We've got some political candidates talking about these kind of things, but you know, it hasn't really gone mainstream. And so anyway, I think it's phenomenal. So Jason, are you familiar with Starcraft and um, on a scale of one to 10, where is your fear level? Let's say in the near term about Skynet and AI, you know, <laughs> taking over the knifer world. Well, I mean, so I, I did play a little StarCraft back in the day, so good game. Um, I was not very good at it. Um, in fact, I unfortunately, for, for me in game playing world, um, my skill level kind of topped out around 2005. So it's been a while since I've made uh, any real inroads there. In fact, I, I tend to pay, play older games when I am engaged in, in gaming. I think Half-Life 2 is one of the best games ever made and love it uh, a lot, a lot, a lot. But the... Um, the, the question related to, to Skynet and fear about that, I, I don't think I fear it as much. And, and you know, I, I do think that we need to continue to have cultural debates about this. And at some point, we are putting our lives in the hands of the machines. And in a lot of ways, we are now, right? The number of people 
they can't make it uh, around in a new city without GPS, for example, is, is a good example where we've lost some skill here. Uh, in fact, this morning, um, my wife recently had her 20-year-old her, uh, Subaru died, and so she needed to um, uh, purchase a, a, a car. So she bought a, a couple years used Subaru, and she got the kind of perk package that came with it today and included um, a weird uh, thing that I haven't seen in a while. Uh, you can one of the services that Subaru provides uh, as part of its perk package is that you can you can mail this card to them and tell them a trip you're about to take, and they will send you instructions back via a packet. And so it reminded me of I don't know if you ever used a trip tick, uh, Wes. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, uh, AAA trip tick was a, for years. Was a uh, um, a service where you told them you were going to take a car. Uh, I'm a car trip from, let's say, Missoula, Montana to San Diego, California, and it would basically Google map it for you, but then present with you this 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 uh, map that was strung together and, and clipped together, and they would highlight their construction and um, uh, 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 point out uh, restaurants that. And you that could were, fold it open to get a right. very clear, you know, clearer view of the cities that you'd be right. going. Do. Absolutely. And what Google Maps does for us today. So uh, I, I was, was delighted that I remember what it was. And, and, and I can't really remember why I had one, but I did. I uh, got one 25 years ago, pre MapQuest, right, which is what largely replaced that and then Google Maps. But, you know, the, the, the fact that we rely on that technology so much, I think, is, is something at least to be aware of. But we have to continue to have conversations about this stuff. And it, when there are decisions made um, uh, uh, on our behalf to move us more towards the technology making the call based on the logarithmic thinking or perhaps, um, you know, uh, uh, predetermined uh, choices that you've worked into the AI, it's certainly something we need to have, we need to be thinking about. But you mentioned truck driving as an example of where AI is going to have such an economic impact. Um, there are a lot of states where truck driving is the number one job. And uh, if you look at, in fact, if you look at number uh, 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 jobs across the United States. There are some states where I think elementary school teacher is the number one job, but uh, in most states, truck driving is the number one job. I don't think we are within a decade of mass losses in that industry driver-wise, because I still think there's a lot of work to do uh, before that becomes a real reality where you will start to see massive job losses. But I don't see truck driving being something that is, uh, 15 years from now, a primary profession in the majority of states in the United States. And, you know, um, I, I, I've talked to to friends that, that are, are well studied in economics. When I talk about the fear is probably a strong word, but the, the, the caution we need to bring to our future economic means through employment um, that, that tell me that we, we've dealt with uh, 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 industrialization and the increase and decrease of jobs over time. And we'll, we'll deal with this as well, but certainly something we need to be acutely aware of. And from an educational standpoint, you know, we need to make sure that we're giving students a lot of different skill sets that are malleable into different careers. It doesn't mean that, you know, if you suddenly lose your job as a truck driver, that you're going to be cross-trained into becoming a nuclear scientist, but there should be other you know, other skill sets that we give students that may have no relevance now that at some point in the future will have the relevance as the job market changes, you know, fairly dramatically. Well, and I feel a little bad, even the way I phrased that question, because it's a little silly to ask about Skynet and that kind of fear factor. Right. That's probably kind of like what people just go to because we've heard of that. And that's a cultural thing of, oh yeah, that's, I know that has to do with AI, but 
you know, the, the UBI, the universal basic mm-hmm. income, the employment aspects, uh, self, you know, self-driving uh, trucks as, as well, pardon me, <coughs> as well as cars. Um, you know, those are things that we need to grapple with and we need to grapple with them practically. It's not just talking about a science fiction Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and, oh, isn't that scary? Like this is talking about our neighbors. This may be talking about our own family. Uh, and this is talking about, you know, big, big scale changes in society. On a good note, you know, from this documentary um, from PBS about AI, in that episode, there's a, there's a section from this kid who's now, I think he's 24 years old, but he was all into robotics and I think first robotics competitively and just, you know, one summer took a golf cart and a computer and figured out how to basically get it to navigate a course. And now he's got a company that has big contracts with some large companies that's doing, you know, long haul trucking. And man, this, this uh, rig, you know, has got all of these different cameras, you know, above it. And, and it does have a driver, but Wow, it's uh, I just I don't know that people recognize how fast this is moving, and these are right. conversations uh, that, that we've got to talk about because we're we are probably not. Let's just I'll just be pessimistic here, which I don't like to be, but you know, we're probably not going to get ahead of this politically. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's there's just there's a lot of things we need to address politically, and I don't I don't think our institutions, um, you know. Our institutions don't tend to be very, very agile. And so when it comes to this kind of thing and the, and the mindsets and things like that uh, of society, um, hopefully we can have some leaders that can really help us. And that will be good if we can have folks you know, pointing to this and talking about, let's work on this. Let's figure this out proactively. Uh, but, um, you know, it's it's something that I, I think it's going to it, it may catch up to us far, you know, a lot of people just maybe maybe kind of unaware of how quickly this happens. Yep. So absolutely. So, all right. Let's talk a little bit of Apple. Uh, let's see. We I think you put in a couple articles as well. Um, there's a, an article uh, that I had to had to share because it was one I thought of you, and maybe I shared this last week. Uh, I'm an Android user who tried the Apple Watch for a month, and now it's the only smartwatch I'll recommend. So that was Android Police on November the eighth. Um, any movement there on your Apple Watch? Front? <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I'm, I'm pretty stuck. I think where, where I'm at in regards to that. Although to, to relay it to another article that I, I think is interesting is that, um, the, I don't think we, I, I don't think we've talked about this article. There's been a lot of hubbub in the last week because Google has a secret, health data, something, something, something. I, I couldn't get past the first couple paragraphs and this was on my phone, so I didn't really read that deeply. Um, but I will say that uh, another article that I'm sharing that is related to that, Mac Rumors reported on November 6th that Apple is now kind of revamping how they're advertising their applications. And, you know, when you get an, an Apple phone, an Apple tablet, an Apple desktop, it does come um, with a number of very functional applications that allow you to do things anywhere from um, um, uh, listen to podcasts to to edit your own video, and it's a it's a great platform for that. But they're now starting to kind of twist 
uh, the availability of, of all the great Apple applications in, in being very privacy focused. And so I'm not particularly worried about my health privacy from the standpoint that, um, you know, my own accounts are secure and, and, and that I don't think that's going to be used against me at any point. Right. And I've been very open here on, on the podcast that I'm a kidney transplant recipient. I'm obviously uh, very engaged with the health uh, 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 industry, but in a future where insurance starts to use, you know, some of the kind of social data available to try to make insurance decisions, I don't want, you know, uh, the fact that maybe I eat a pizza every once in a while, um, or or uh, uh, travel through Spain as I will in the month of December, uh, uh, and, and take advantage of the culinary delights there to be something that's used against me later, or that I have high blood pressure uh, on on work days, or that I'm not walking as much as I should be or whatever that. And um, I do think, I, I, I do not perceive at this point that Google has some mass conspiracy to collect health data to use against me. I do think, however, that if the watch ever becomes important to me, let's say from a from a, um, a heart health standpoint, right, all the amazing things that the Apple Watch is doing for cardiac health, um, I think I might be more interested in a platform like Apple that is really designing apps around the privacy piece. And so I thought that the, the juxtaposition of those two articles is pretty interesting. Reminds me again of the PBS Frontline uh, AI special. It, it shows an app in China that someone's developed and they can actually check about 5,000 different data points for someone before deciding in an instant whether or not to make a loan to that person. And there's all kinds of weird things that they have correlations to, like do you let your cell phone battery get way down to the bottom or do you kind of keep it you know, more charged? And I mean, things statistically that are just wild, but the number of, of data points. So you know, we were getting some a prescription uh, medication for my wife today. And of course the CVS person's like, what's your phone number? Well, they're on sale. You know, you can get it, get this cheaper. And of course, what you're doing every time you give your phone number, your email is you're helping them connect the, the data points to, you know, build this larger cloud of information about yourself. And, you know, China is building right now the case study of what happens when the government and business get together and put all that together and have a social credit score for people. And, you know, do a lot of things. And, and by the way, that is something we need to decide as a society is, do we want to move also towards the, the China model of surveillance, no privacy, social credit, you know, or do we want to live in a, in a different world? Yep, absolutely. Okay. A couple screen uh, screen time uh, ones. I want to do a couple. We've got about uh, 15 minutes left. Uh, social media, Instagram, uh, starting to hide like counts in the U.S. Uh, an article from Variety on, on November 8th. And also from Wired on November 8th, um, thinking that, you know, this is uh, harming, you know, people's conversations. It's harming the platform. Basically, <coughs> pardon me, I think the I think the, the person originating it is going to be able to see likes, but everybody else is not. And so, you know, that may you know, cause some substantial changes in the way that people are interacting with social media. Pretty interesting. But the biggest screen time article I want to talk about, this is really crazy. Uh, I'll do a shout out to one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called No Dumb Questions. And <clears throat> this is an article from the Des Moines Register on September 24th. I had not heard of this situation before. And this is, I'm going to use this tomorrow <clears throat> in our parent university about screen time to unwrap because there's a lot here. 
The article is titled, Meet Carson King, the Iowa legend who raised more than $1 million for charity off of a sign asking for beer money. And so what happened here is that, you know, on Saturday mornings for college football, you know, game day travels to these different places. And so this 23, 24 year old kid had the idea of putting a, a beer sign up with a Venmo and people, you know, jumped on it. And then he decided he's going to start donating it to charity and to a local children's hospital. And then Anheuser-Busch gets on board and all these other folks and they start to match money and okay. And it, all this stuff has happened. Well, the part that this links to screen time and social media um, is really at the very <coughs> bottom of the article. And at the very bottom of the article, uh, they, <coughs> they describe that Carson, when he was about 16 years old, had posted a couple um, tweets that uh, were racist jokes. Uh, they date back to 2012 when King was a 16-year-old high school. I think he's responded to them really well. But one of the things this shows is how we live in, in what the, what I read in a New York Times article is being called a cancel culture, where there's no forgiveness. There's no opportunity to uh, have made a mistake when you're a young kid. Uh, you might just be judged by whatever you happened to post when you were 16. You know, Anheuser Busch is now having nothing to do with him. They're gonna they're gonna honor their uh, prior agreements, but there's no further moving forward with him. And it's just like you know, you sinned with two tweets when you were 16, so we're gonna brand you with a tattoo. Forever racist. You're canceled. It's just incredibly harsh. And so I think there's a lot to unpack with this. Um, we live in a, in a culture where morality can happen. And, and in this case, it all seemed to be positive. And I think this young man has handled himself as well as he possibly could in terms of deleting these tweets and apologizing and saying that doesn't represent who he is today, et cetera. Um, but it's also, you know, why do the mainstream media journalists have to publish that about him? You know, why, why did they do that? And, and, you know, I'm a big fan of the fourth estate in journalism. And, and I think that we have, hopefully one of the, the best and, and freest, you know, journal journalism cultures here in the United States. But I think it's unfortunate that things like that, you know, we ought to talk about that because, you know, if, if you're young and stupid, as many of us have been, uh, and maybe still are, um, you know, and you're going to put some stuff like that on the social media, goodness gracious, you could, you can pay the price for it. And some people will conclude, well, that's why I'm not giving my kid a smartphone while they're under my roof, you know, until they're 18. And I honestly don't don't think that's the solution either. I think we're going to have to help kids navigate this world and have some freedom and have some abilities to make choices um, because it is very potentially perilous. There's also, you know, lots of benefits to to using the technology and the tools. But had you heard of that story before? Uh, were, you, were you familiar with that? Or is that is that new to you as it, as it was to me, Jason? The beer sign story, yeah. I'd heard that one as it played out, and um, I hadn't heard the part about the social media post, however, and, and going back in that. And one of the things that I immediately think of when I hear you talk about that is that, thank goodness that there was no social media when I was in high school and college, right? I was a goony dude. Um, you know, like I did dumb stuff and I embarrassed by some of the stuff that is thankfully becoming hazy in my memory as I get older. But, you know, I did dumb stuff. I did 
stupid stunts and dumb things and petty crimes and all sorts of dumb things that I did in both high school and college. And um, living under that microscope, which is what social media provides for everyone, whether they want it or not, you gauge in that you are, you know, you get scrutinized. And uh, I, I think that's something that we need to be acutely aware of. And, you know, that's part of the reason why that, that I, I dislike all the hand wringing about both millennials and whatever calling the generation after millennials, the name seems to change every other week, but um, you know, like living your, your younger life under the extraordinary scrutiny of social media, where everything becomes a story, right? Everything is in the news because we are all part of that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad to hear that he dealt with that in a deft way. Uh, I thought the fact that he, you know, literally could have a million dollars if he wanted to, uh, uh, people donated that to him to buy beer, and yet he ended up using it for good purposes in his community, I think is an extraordinary thing and an act that a lot of, of, of 20-somethings wouldn't have thought to do. Um, but that I, I think it just highlights, I think, the difficulty of, 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 of adolescence and young adulthood in a world where everything is, 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 is uh, seemingly available online. And I also understand why in a lot of cases that, um, you know, kids have moved more towards the, the social media platforms that don't have a record to them, that aren't tracking uh, things over time. You know, I do wish I had more pictures of my friends in college. I do wish I had some some um, uh, uh, memory-inspiring uh, 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 memory media, right, from college. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I have a, you know, a box of random crap that that uh, some photos, some not. And the photos aren't in super great shape. And, and that's it. But at the same time, um, you know, I also all of my screw ups didn't end up, uh, uh, you know, being uh, aggressively posted either. So I think we need to have a lot of empathy for the fact that childhood and adolescence and college days are different than when we experience that. And if you're a classroom teacher, like I think it's easy to bemoan a lot of, of, of the things the kids do because it's just so different than our experience. But remember, we were never challenged by having YouTube in high school, right? Oh and yes, of course, YouTube is an amazing educational tool and I will fight for it until uh, it's no longer relevant in that way. But man, you can get lost in YouTube pretty easily. And, you know, I, YouTube is way more interesting than learning about even really interesting stuff in history. Let me share a couple uh, more related articles about YouTube and screen time. And then maybe you can pick up a couple Chrome articles. I think that, that you would put in. Um, so again, preparing for this parent university session tomorrow, uh, Bonnie Christian in the week on November 11th posted YouTube is my parenting nightmare and talking about the incredibly powerful addictive side of, of videos, especially for young children, and how difficult that, that is to navigate. She references an article, <coughs> which um, which Pocket tells me it's going to take me 23 minutes to, to read. I've probably read about a fourth of it so far. This is an older article from September 27th, or from September 2017 by James Brendel, but it's called Something is Wrong on the Internet. And this is talking about a variety of different issues involved with YouTube and the content there and the ways that, um, you know, people are, are gaming that. And also, I mean, think we've talked about this in terms of the, uh, the algorithms, you know, creating content and, and grabbing things and, you know, just it is 
it is such a wild west. And, and I tweeted just earlier this evening. I mean, one of the things we used to do with television, like with PBS, is we would trust it, right? I say we, my parents, grandparents, like the older folks would trust, okay, you're watching PBS. It's going to be you know, produced by, by these folks that are, are subject to regulation. There's not going to be profanity on that. It's going to be okay. We're really in a wild west with respect to, you know, YouTube and publishing and the way that, you know, maybe the kids do like Peppa Pig videos, but oh my gosh, there's tons of folks that are out there putting, you know, Peppa Pig videos out and you're going to potentially be able to see, you know, all kinds of things that a Peppa Pig character is going to say and, and do. Um, so I think those those are worth uh, checking out. Uh, what about some of your Google articles? I think you've got some news on end of life and I, and I want to sure. do this. This Phil Schiller, Phil's uh, taking some shots at Chrome. So, what do you think <laughs> about that? So, these are all. Uh, let me do the Chrome, uh, the the Chromebook ones first, and then a couple other interesting notes from the Google world. First and foremost, um, we've talked about this in the past, actually several times in the past. That one of the challenges of purchasing a Chromebooks is you need to be acutely aware that at some point Google stops supporting those, right? And one of the things that is true, you are generally buying low end hardware when you buy Chromebooks, and at the end of life. Uh, uh, it's six and a half years right now, and in some cases they extend it beyond that as Google's been trying to push uh, the value of Chromebooks into schools. Um, but you have to go look it up on a weird page that's 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 not necessarily easy to find, and unless you know what you're looking for, you don't know when your Chromebook is no longer receiving updates. Well, Google's taking a very smart action, and they're going to build that into the interface of your Chromebook, so you can go into the settings and find out when the end of life is for your Chromebook. And we've talked about the end of life a lot in the past, but I like that notion of empowering users and letting them know when the end of life of a Chromebook is. But interestingly, um, uh, that's the, the 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 good news from from Google World this week. A nine to five Google report today that Apple's Phil Schiller um, it, it talks about, and, and I and I got to bring up the exact quotation here because he takes very aggressive shots at Google. Um, he says that that basically he understands why people um, uh, buy Chromebooks or why schools buy Chromebooks because they're so cheap. But he talks about kids who really are into learning and want to learn will have better success. It's not hard to understand why kids aren't engaged in a classroom without applying technology in a way that inspires them. I have a little bit of a, a disagreement with that. But you need to have these cutting edge learning tools to help kids really achieve their best results. Yet Chromebooks don't do that. Chromebooks have gotten to the classroom because, frankly, they're cheap testing tools for required testing. If all you want to do is test kids, well, maybe a cheap net notebook will do that for you, but they're not going to succeed. Holy dog, do I disagree with that notion. First, I want to be super clear that you do not need to purchase premium Apple products to have good pedagogy in the classroom utilizing technology. And in fact, one of the things I've always been a, a firm believer of is that even not perfect technology can provide an interesting avenue for engagement in a classroom if properly applied, right? But the other piece of that is, is that I feel like I'm somewhat living proof because I am 100% Chrome OS guy. I have a Chrome desktop at work. I have a Chromebook in my, my backpack. I, I utilize that in a docking station at home. That is not true. You can be perfectly productive, learn, create, connect, 
with a Chromebook. And, um, you know, I, I like Apple stuff. I haven't, I don't like it as much as I used to because I feel like they've lost their way a little bit in regards to the sizzle that, that, that they used to be able to dominate the market with. But man, do I disagree with that notion. And I've seen so many classroom teachers take Chromebooks. And I'm even just talking about the with the Google suite, which is great. I've seen people take Chromebooks and engage in the Microsoft uh, Office 365 suite with awesome results. I've seen people take Chromebooks and access iWork on the web and do amazing things with it. And uh, yeah, I that that's it's gross, and I don't think you you don't you don't get a, a market by cutting down your competitors in that way. There you have it, folks. The official response: Doctor Knifer has spoken. <laughs> Phil Schiller, yeah, he's gonna he's taking it, he's taking some shots himself. Uh, okay, so there's a couple security articles, and maybe we'll mention <coughs> these disinformation ones. <coughs> I apologize for my cough tonight. Um, this one uh, under security is from NIST, uh, which is the organization that basically comes up with password policies for everybody. I think, among other things, from October the fourth, security fatigue can cause computer users to feel hopeless and act recklessly. New studies suggest we can probably relate to this, right? I mean, even using a password manager, it's hard. It's challenging. I had it happen today, you know, resetting a password for something. I was like, are you kidding? And I just, you know, but but here's a study showing how we're fatigued, how we use, you know, easy to remember passwords, repeat the same passwords, uh, yes, this is probably something that we're all living. Uh, Business Insider reminds us on November 11th, do not use your Google password for other apps. It talks about two-step verification and how that's very good. But, you know, we need to be using unique and complex long passwords on every website. And you shouldn't be uh, repeating that. Um, and then... Um, uh, I'm going to skip up to the disinformation title. And man, we, we could do a whole show on this. We're about at the top of the hour, but I just want to mention a couple of these because these are so good. Uh, NPR yesterday, how internet trolls and online extremists are hijacking American politics. And uh, this is a fantastic interview. In fact, my Geek of the Week, um, I probably shouldn't, I don't know, should I do Geeks of the Week that I haven't read yet? Um, this is this is the article or the uh uh, host here is Andrew Morantz, and he spent three years reporting on the alt-right's use of social media. And if you'd like some insight into the ways the alt-right specifically has been utilizing, you know, vast bands and, and hordes of uh, a lot of times teens and just young people, but basically folks who want to troll others and they have created their own articles and information, made hashtags trend, got mainstream media to pay attention to it, and they have hijacked the minds of thousands and thousands of people. And this was bad in 2016, and Morantz, who studied this the last three years, said, we ain't seen nothing yet. Get ready, baby, for 2020. It's going to be horrific. So this is a great interview on NPR Fresh Air. It's an audio podcast you can listen to. And on the same topic, uh, First Draft has an article called Information Disorder. Uh, the techniques we saw in 2016 have evolved. This is an October 2019 um, uh, special report. I like this terminology uh, saying we live in an age of information disorder. 
And, you know, words matter. And for that reason, what when journalists use fake news in their reporting, they're giving legitimacy to an unhelpful and increasingly dangerous phrase. And so they talk about misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. There's a really nice uh, Venn diagram here talking about falseness and intention to harm. I mean, this is, when I get into this stuff with media literacy and I'm thinking about English, like, okay, my daughter just did a big study on Beowulf and that's really, you know, great. And, and there's some great critical thinking that's going on there. And I'm not just dogging English teachers and maybe I'll be, you know, strung up at work when I go back mentioning this. I mean, there's, there's great stuff that's happening critical thinking wise there, but now we're reading Macbeth and I'm thinking, why are we not studying this? Because this kind of the weaponization of social media, disinformation campaigns, the way that politics and, and communication, you know, conversation nationwide is being driven by this stuff. I just don't think it's being discussed and studied the way that it should be. And so the last one is a PBS frontline from November 7th, how Saudi Arabia weaponized Twitter to target MBS critics. And if you're not familiar with MBS, then you need to do a little research on Saudi Arabia because, you know, he is the, uh, the king of Saudi, well, the crown prince, the heir apparent of Saudi Arabia, uh, who ordered the assassination and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi and, um, you know, utilized social media in ways that helped basically him do that. So that is not good news. That is pretty negative, but it's stuff we got to talk about and we got to help kids. You know, we need to help inspire students to, to solve this stuff, right? Smart minds need to be they are tackling this, but we need even more folks to help us tackle and solve all this. So thankfully, I think, Jason, you have solved disinformation for the 2020 campaign. Uh, your solution is what? Oh, well, put me on the spot. Well, I, what I would give a shout out is that that um, I would defend the humanities as being as important. But what I think we need to do is... Uh, I think we empower the the professionals that are already doing a lot of this work, um, and that that's that's the school librarian. I don't think that they're th in a lot of cases that they have enough resources or enough access to students to help push these conversations. I know when I was a, a, a classroom teacher that the, the the school librarians in my building were really critical, particularly when I taught government and social studies classes, in helping me uh, provide another voice of not just in, in some of the old school stuff like source citation and the importance of acknowledging others' work, but because the library is no longer a physical building, it is a large global manifestation that we need to take even more uh, proactive steps to evaluate information. And a lot of the stuff that on the early days of the internet, it was kind of a boring way to look at the internet, like what is the difference between this website and that website and the internet bad and print sources good and the kind of stuff, the lines we were drawing um, uh, uh, very early on in the internet. Well, the, the, li the lines are, are absolutely blurred, right? Like there is no longer a, a distinction between the print world and, and, and the internet world. They're both considered both viable uh, uh, quality sources and in, in other cases, uh, pieces of propaganda. And so uh, I think re-engaging, re if your building is not doing so, your library staff and helping proceed with those conversations in your classroom, I think that's an absolute critical piece. All right. Well, I've taken this over the top of the hour trying to get in even more articles, but hey, 
How about Geek of the Week? Would you like to share one with us tonight? Sure. Uh, favorite site that I, I'm really surprised neither of us have shared before because I know we both use it. The Noun Project is an extraordinary website that provides, I think it's over 2 million icons. And icons are little uh, flat designed uh, uh, caricatures of something. And I love them because they are great in presentations and they're great with providing good quality, clean graphic design um, in, in both print and web-based documents. And icon sets are sometimes hard to find. Uh, there are a thousand free versions uh, uh, available on the internet. What I like about the Noun Project is that you can search. Um, and I like it so much, I actually pay for the pro version of this. Um, and a little hint, uh, if you have the pro version and you threaten to leave, they will drop the price. So uh, that's something that, that I do. And it's something I would pay for the, the maximum pro price. It's a great service. You can use any of the icons on the website for free if you cite them. It's an open source project, but you don't have to cite them if you purchase the pro account. And it plugs right into... Uh, PowerPoint, and Google Slides. Fantastic. All right. Well, I have three. I'll go fast. Uh, one of them is going to be on my reading list for the holiday. Uh, this is Andrew Morantz's book. He researched for four years. It's called Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Absolutely fantastic. He's the guy interviewed in that NPR uh, segment from yesterday on Fresh Air that I was telling you about. Second of all, um, also from First Draft News, but this is more of a toolkit. This is called Information Disorder, the Definitional Toolbox. And so this is also from uh, Claire Wardle. So shout out to Claire. Uh, definitions matter. These tools will give you the words you need to talk about information disorder. Uh, just fantastic. And then lastly, uh, on a little bit of a different note, uh, from Robot and AI's Twitter on November 7th, MIT's Mini Cheetahs. I don't know if you saw these, Jason, but this is a you know herd of about 15 uh, headless miniature robots that look like little dogs, and they are moving in concert. And I guess if we want to creep people out, let's take a look at these <laughs> and, you know, consider each one of these having a non-automatic weapon attached to them or some kind of explosive. And yes, we could probably get them concerned. So we are four minutes beyond the top of the hour. Dr. Neifer, when you're not here on Wednesday nights, where can people find you and learn with you? Find me on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. Um, I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, www.ncc.org. And I'll give a shout out to the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance, the 14-state virtual school alliance that works on issues like we talked about earlier tonight with rural education and access. How about you, sir? Awesome. Well, <clears throat> when I'm not coughing, um, I am uh, blogging at speedofcreativity.org. My um, Twitter is wfryer. And my media and digital literacy website for the year is mdtech.cassidy.org. We want to encourage everybody to check out our show notes at edtechsr.com slash links. We want to thank you for tuning in. Please give us a shout out. If you uh, find anything useful and helpful, let us know. You can reach out to Jason and I on Twitter. You can use the hashtag edtechsr. And as always, we encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe. Until next week. Good night.